Stay tuned for the organic farm stand coming right up. Hmm. That is not the theme for the organic farm stand. So I guess we will have to forego that today. I don't know what quite happened there. My name is Richard Hill, and I want to welcome all our friends and guests in Connecticut on Long Island, and especially in Brantford, Connecticut, where we have some excellent longtime loyal listeners, uh, Andy and Marlene, and a big shout out to them. Had a wonderful time with them last night. So uh, I want to also uh, mention that uh, we'll be having special guests on our show this week, as usual. But first of all, let me welcome Guy Beardsley to the, the phone line. Guy, it's yeah, so... I'm, I'm here. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Great to have you. I don't uh, quite know what happened to our music there. It just went completely berserk. Uh, <laughs> well, maybe it's old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think I'm getting old. I put it in the wrong CD. I know I'm getting old. Hey, absolutely. Right. <laughs> anyway, good show. Uh, yeah, so let me just uh, just mention what we're going to be doing, and then we can launch right into the small farms report. Um, so Guy, of course, will take it from the top and uh, give us his report. Um, then uh, Vincent Kay, it, this being the first Thursday of October, Vincent Kay will be here with his B report and uh, his absolutely non-pariah uh, account of what's going on with his particular brood, but also just in general in terms of beekeeping in Connecticut. And um, then uh, a little after 12, uh, 12, 30, 12.30, yes, 12.30, uh, we'll be joined by Katie Poole from uh, Massaro Farm in Woodbridge, Connecticut. She's going to give us an update on the fall activities on the farm it's a community farm, it's an organic farm, and uh, they have all kinds of wonderful things throughout the year, but the fall harvest is going to be a very festive time, no doubt. So, Guy, let's, uh, let's get started. We've had a, quite a range of, um, I would say, uh, wonderful and somewhat frightening weather in the past uh, couple of weeks. Yeah, well, we had, uh, at one time, we had over five and a half inches of rain one, one within one 18-hour uh, period. Yeah, that was, uh, but, you know, when you, re when you have organic soil uh, and you keep it that way, it absorbs the rain without a whole lot of trouble. You don't have a huge amount of runoff uh, when, you do, when you do that. That's one of the advantages of, uh, of maintaining and developing and then maintaining organic soil that uh, will really absorb that rain so you don't have a huge problem. Why, why is that more the case with organic than non-organic? Well, it's the um, materials that you put in the soil. You keep good uh, compost in it, and, uh, I mean, it's the materials in the compost are, are ab absorb the, the, uh, the water and uh, hold it. And uh, so it, as opposed to running off, if you, get, if you, if, uh, you take um, soil and uh, put synthetic materials in it, both uh, fertilizers and uh, pesticides, it eliminates a whole lot of the aspects that the soil holds. 
that's in the soil. And uh, what that does, and I, I don't have the details as to why, but I do know we don't have a huge amount of runoff. Uh, the only problems we might have the runoff is when our pond overflows. And uh, it didn't over. We got a pretty decent system to take the excess water, and we run it into a very long, about 150-yard uh, trough, which it, it can all go into. And uh, then within that trough, it'll absorb into the ground also. And we have some trees and bushes around that trough, so they absorb much of it. Oh. And if you keep um, you know, this is a situation in which you, we do not put any kind of roundup or anything along the, the walls. And the walls, uh, we allow the walls to, on each side of the walls, to develop these uh, bushes and uh, small trees. Now, when the trees get big, we'll cut them down and use them for heart, for uh, regular cordwood. But uh, when they're small, they're, they're, those roots go out there and they just absorb a tremendous amount of water. And uh, so that that's a major factor too. Anyway, um, that's well, let me let me get into uh, to um, a couple of things. I have a, this year has been remarkable in two ways. Um, one good and one not so good. Now, I, I'd pointed out the fact that uh, within the garlic, when I side-dressed it, all of a sudden, the rye started to grow up just where I put the side-dressing on the garlic. Amazing. I, I broadcast the... I had three-row... Two, three-row... Of, of three-row patches of garlic, both about uh, 150 yards long. And... Um, all of a sudden, after I side-dressed it, I see these little shoots coming up, and in about 10 days, I recognize it as rye. And I hadn't planted rye in that field in 20 years. I checked it back. And why in the world, when I side-dressed it, the rye was all of a sudden uh, energized to start growing? And I planted all sorts of things in that period, in that place, uh, during the, the intervening years, I had potatoes, I had uh, beets, I had uh, broccoli, I had uh, kale, uh, all sorts of things, and I had seen nothing in the way of rye. And here I'm when I side dressed when I side dressed it with with this uh, fertilizer, which was organic fertilizer. Uh, all of a sudden, the, uh, the rye started to grow. And the, the unfortunate thing about rye is it has this aleopathic tendency, which kills the other grasses and, and weeds around it, which was all right as far as killing the weeds, but it also killed the rye. And so I lost about half the rye I had planted, and the half that lived was much smaller than normal. You mean well, the that, garlic? That's in the garlic, right. Yeah. Yeah, and that's something now. That's that's the thing that wasn't so good. Now the thing that was good was my raspberries. Uh, we have uh, in the spring and uh, early summer we have red raspberries and black raspberries, and they they seem to did you know they did well. But within the last three weeks, I've had that same red raspberries perform beautifully. This is, has a fall raspberry crop, which was about three times as good as the spring raspberry crop. And I've, I've had red raspberries in the fall, but nothing like these tremendous uh, big red raspberries 
uh, this fall. And I can't figure out why in the world that has happened. Hmm. We do know we had the rains. That was help. But, um, and I didn't fertilize them at all. And uh, this spring crop was okay, but this fall crop has been absolutely magnificent. And, um, I mean, they're really big, beautiful, uh, not only big and beautiful, but really tasty raspberries. And, uh, and I have not had that happen. Uh, and I've had fall raspberries, but nothing like the ones I've had this year and still have. Amazing. That, that, right. that is amazing. It's been... It is amazing. And so those two things, well, we had great blueberries this year, but that's not too terribly unusual. And uh, the blackberries were fine, too. Not as good as they were last year, but they were fine also. Uh, <laughs> and the strawberries were good, too. But, um, you know, all those things, uh, you take uh, you take what you get and so forth. Um, now, the corn was also good this year, but... Um, if you were to look at the corn growing, uh, I made I hoed them out once when they got about uh, four to six inches high, and that's all the time I did. And I let the weeds grow around them because last year I was most successful in letting the weeds grow up around the corn and uh, kept the the uh, I, I don't know if they kept them out, but they never got to it. That is, the raccoons and the deer never got to the, the corn, and so the only problem with the corn was the the worms, which is you you can't fight those. Like we're going to have the corn earworm and the and the uh, let's see and the, we have European corn borer, and uh, then uh, if the the corn was going to last, we'd also have the fall army worm in it, but. Uh, the corn was good this year. All you do is trim off the tip where yeah. the worms got into it, and it was really great corn. <laughs> yes. Uh, right. But, uh, you know, some of those things uh, I do and have done for the years, and uh, to, to most ladies, uh, weeds are like the plague. They, they really don't want to see a single weed in what they're growing. And I let weeds grow, and... Um, in fact, when I take this crew uh, that Janelle has got her her fourth her fifth grade class out to the potato patch, and we're going to be digging potatoes, um, they're going to see. You, know, you won't be able to find out where the row is. I know where the row is, but it's because of all the weeds. But we're going to dig potatoes out, and the, the kids are going to treat those potatoes like Christmas presents as they come out of the ground. Huh. And, and the kids really do love to dig potatoes when you, when, of course, when you get, you give them a little hand in, uh, in opening up the row and opening up the, uh, the particular hills at a time. Right. Right. Wow. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> uh, that, and that's what we're going to be doing here. Now, I need to have a couple other points that I'd like to make here. Uh, sure. The first one is, uh, at this time of the year, after the equinox, you're not going to get a huge amount of growing on anything that you've got growing outside. Now, there's a huge difference between the tomatoes that are now in the hoop house and those that are outside. We've got two big, long rows outside, and um, they're still producing tomatoes. But, of course, with the equinox being now 10 days or so ago, about 22 days, I guess about two weeks ago now, that uh, we've got uh, um, a huge amount of green tomatoes, which are probably not going to ripen up. But if anybody likes fried green tomatoes or green tomatoes, then what we're going to do is 
before we see a frost, and I don't have any frost predicted yet, uh, we're going to pull those green tomatoes off, and we're going to put them in either newspapers or paper bags, and they will ripen up. They won't ripen up with the flavor that uh, they would get if they were vine ripen, but they will ripen up in pretty decent shape, and they will, as long as you keep them enough moisture in there uh, without molding them, then uh, they're going to be a, a good tomato to eat and to slice, and they're going to be much better than what you would get out of the stores anyway. Yeah. Wow. Okay. You're you're a lucky man, guy. I, I... Oh, I, I I'm you know into you're absolutely right on that, and I absolutely uh, thank thank God for that matter. Right. Okay. So um, you know at this year, and we're now sort of coming up with a uh, an analysis of what happened this year. The peppers were really great this year, and they still are. Which now, the which are kind? Most interesting because when you plant them, they definitely need to have heat. And so we don't plant them until uh, you get into June, where you've got the really long days to start them out with, and they'll, of course, grow during the course of summer. But at the end of the year, like right now, those peppers will continue to ripen up, and they will withstand a light frost. Uh, without too much trouble. Boy, they would never do that when you're starting to plant them out. Right. So, anyway, the peppers were great this year. The broccoli was good this year, too, although I didn't get as many side shoots as I as I hoped I would, but uh, nevertheless, that that was, um, they were they were good, and so forth. Now, let me uh, point out another time, a couple other things. This is a time of the year when one should definitely get your soil tested. Uh, you know, within the organic community, you've got to test it every other year anyway if you don't test it more often. But uh, test that, make that soil test now because you finish the season for the most part, and whatever the soil test comes out, you can plan to get whatever nutrients you need to get the soil back into shape for next season. And, of course, uh, you... you there's just a, a whole lot of things you'll learn about with a soil test, and it always irks me no end when people come by and say they, their tomatoes didn't do good. And I say, well, what would your soil test? Oh, we didn't make a soil test. Well, you to spend all this time, effort, energy, money, and uh, effort to uh, to grow things without knowing what you're growing in is is amazing to me. So <laughs> we always push for soil tests, and this is the time of the year to get it done best. Now, obviously, you can do it later on um, in the spring when the, when the soil warms up uh, after it, because uh, you, you can't do it when it's frozen. And, but get it done now, and you'll be able to do a lot of good planning uh, for the for the winter, and uh, and then you'll figure out what you need to do to to make your your garden a whole lot better. So anyway, I have to push that that aspect on it. Uh, let's see, uh, let's see what else I want to talk about here. The two two other two three other things. I'll tell you what, guy. You keep rolling, and I'm going to get Vincent uh, lined up. Okay, good show. So you can right. take over, but you absolutely, you, yeah. We'll, oh, we'll definitely talk about things. Absolutely, so we're going to talk about black garlic. Go ahead, uh, Richard. Thank you. Yeah, on the black garlic, you know, with these small cloves and small bulbs, which have small cloves in them, uh, we have quite a few of them. Even though we were knocked out by half the pro- half the product. Um, 
the small bulbs will cook much faster. Now, we, we use these special garlic cookers, which keeps the temperature between about 82 and 86 degrees. And, of course, we usually, with a larger bulb, we can, and a bulb that is fresh, um, that is fresh out of the ground, and after that's matured for about uh, 10 days to two weeks, um, that will go ahead and cook into a good black garlic, which has got the proper consistency and flavor in about six to seven days. Now, because the garlic has been out of the ground since July, it will cook in about three to four days, and you have to be super careful because once that garlic gets overcooked, uh, where it gets a little bit more chewy than it sh- than it should be, because as you pull the clove out of the of the garlic bulb, that should be soft enough so that when you pull the skin off, the skin comes off completely, and then you can just roll out with your thumb the the black garlic that has been cooked and at that point it becomes exactly what you want it it will be sweet and no bite to it and it has sort of a uh, some people call it a sort of a molasses flavor uh, other people call it sort of a jasmine flavor and i'm sure that there's other people have different variety different thoughts about it so anyway those are the uh, those are some of the aspects of, of the black garlic and uh I usually recommend well, the usual size garlic we have that uh, one clove a day. But now with these smaller garlics, I think probably that we go ahead and uh, have two cloves a day, which is not a problem, providing the the black garlic is is uh, performed and you cook it to the point where it's still soft. And uh, it's got to be black, which is still soft. And uh, you just pull the clothes off of the bulb and uh, just uh, skin them off, and then you're, you're in good shape. So anyway, with the, uh, with the garlic out of the way, let's see what else they say. Uh, I must point out that uh, at this is at the time of the year in which the hoop house uh, plantings are really worth it. Because, as I pointed out before, there is a good bit difference between the tomatoes growing in the fields and the tomatoes growing in the hoop house, regardless of whether they're the big slicers, uh, the paste tomatoes, the, uh, the salad bowl tomatoes, or the cherry, or the grape tomatoes. doesn't make too much difference. Uh, the, in the hoop house, you're going to have a good two weeks more of good growing than you are when the, the, the tomatoes are outside. Uh, even though the outside tomatoes can be covered, if, but they have to be, of course, we grow them on, on uh, within, the, within the, uh, the wire cages that, that we put out. And, uh, but nevertheless, they're, they're still growing and they're still turning red, but uh, we have a huge number of them which are not going to get turned red, but they'll still be nice and green mm-hmm. and big. You know, a tomato will go big to the point, and then it turns whatever color it's going to turn. Generally speaking, it does not turn color uh, until it gets to the size that it's going to stay. And that point, and then you go ahead and, and uh, let it grow. And what we do is we pull off as soon as we see any color coming into the t- green tomatoes. We pull them off 
and uh, put them off to one side because that excites the plant so that they then start producing more of the ripening tomatoes than they would if you just let the tomatoes stay on the ground, stay on the vine. So it's important to uh, keep the tomatoes uh, coming, and uh, you always want to pick them daily. Uh, you don't want to let them sit on a sit a patent. That's particularly true with the sun gold cherry tomatoes, which will split pretty pretty well, yeah. uh, even on a in a heavy dew sometimes. So we we get, we do have plenty of uh, we have both uh, outdoor tomatoes and indoor tomatoes with those uh, uh, sun golds. And uh, we also have red ones there, too. But those sun colds definitely need to be picked every day. They have such a unique, uh, sweet and uh, tart flavor that is very peculiar that you want to have, uh, that you want to make sure that, uh, that you always make sure that you've got uh, sun gold tomatoes growing in your garden. Mm. That's, that's excellent. So, um, uh, uh, Go ahead, Richard. You got uh, you got our favorite uh, guy on the line. Yeah, Vincent is with us, and uh, we do we do have you know this uh, full schedule today because we have Katie Katie Poole coming in at uh, yeah, absolutely right after twelve thirty. So let's let's uh, thank Guy for his uh, small farm report as usual, and uh, move over to Vincent K, who is uh, we don't know quite where. Let's find out. <laughs> okay, Richard, thank you so much. Um, actually, we're in a bee yard in North Madison, Connecticut. It's a small bee yard uh, on water company property, uh, which we lease. And uh, we're checking the solar fencing. Everything seems we have a, a tester that we test the voltage. So uh, everything is up to snuff on that. Uh, no sign of bears. Although the other day we were in Oxford and we just happened to say, I told my helper, John, I said, Let's test that fence. And uh, we tested it, and there was no pulse at all. I said, oh, my God. And sure enough, one of the batteries had gone dead. So we had to replace that ASAP, and we did that. Um, we went right to the auto parts store and bought a deep cycle, which is what you need, a deep cycle um, marine battery. Um, oh. Those are the only ones that you can use on these fences. But uh, we replaced it, and now it's putting out 10,000 volts, which no, is what no, you really need you, for uh, 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 repelling the bears. How do you test that? Did somebody grab it? <laughs> no, we have a voltmeter. Oh, and, excellent, um, excellent, right. We have a voltmeter. We have a, a, a rod on the voltmeter we push into the ground, and then we have an alligator clip. Yeah. And we uh, put it on the hot wire, and it uh, reads out on our digital uh, uh, computer there a, uh, a reading of uh, exactly... Uh, how many volts uh, the fence is putting out? Now, of you course, when it's wet, the ground is when the ground is wet, <laughs> you get a, you, you get you a get better it. reading. And um, it um, when it's dry in the summer or frozen in the winter, you don't get as as many volts coming out because you know the electricity looks for ground, and it, it's more complex than, than I really want to get into right now. But we're here in North Madison, and this this fence looks good. Um, we're making the rounds and we're feeding bees that need to be fed. Well, what are we feeding? We're feeding them sugar syrup that we make at home. It's a 50-50 um, to volume ratio. So we use about 25 pounds of sugar to about two and a half gallons of water. And then we warm it on a propane burner stove outside and uh, it's good to go. What kind Sometimes of sugar we add- What was that guy? What kind of sugar do you use? 
Uh, we use white sugar. I mean, we use Just as processed. Granulated sugar, then. I can't hear you. I'm sorry. Was yeah. it granulated sugar? Yes. Yes. Oh, okay. All right. You're gonna you're gonna have to uh, speak uh, quite a bit louder, guy. We're not. Okay. We're all right. Thank you. Um, so anyhow, we feed. We don't feed all the bees, but we we feed them. Uh, we have a responsibility and uh, to make sure that since we've harvested a wonderful honey product from them, that we make sure they have enough food for the winter. And um, as everyone knows, the winters around here in Connecticut and probably around the world have gotten warmer. So the bees stay active longer into the season, longer into the year, which means they use up more food. Um, and this is a, a conundrum that uh, you want a warm winter, but you don't want too warm a winter because the bees don't go into their, uh, they don't go to sleep, they don't hibernate, but their metabolism changes and it slows down once you go below 40 degrees during the day, 45 degrees during the day, and then certainly 25 to 30 at night is a good temperature to get bees through the winter uh, in a long period of time um, where there's nothing blooming, uh, it's dark, it's cold, and uh, you want them as still and as inactive inside the hives as possible. Once it gets that cold, by the way, you can, cannot feed them. Uh, that, would, that would probably kill a hive because of the um, moisture that you're introducing into the hive at that point. It creates kind of like a wind chill factor. So you want to do all your, to, to beekeepers that are maybe listening, you want to do all your feeding now. We've got a, a good period of uh, feeding bees, uh, good temperatures um, where the bees can take the syrup in. They put it inside the comb just the way they would um, nectar from the flowers. And then they fan, fan their wings over it. Um, and that's uh, how they reduce it. So are you there? Yeah. Yep. Oh, okay, you can, I heard something on the phone. I wanted to make sure that I wasn't cut off. Um, <laughs> we're in a remote area, so yeah. we just never know whether the phones will work uh, at all. Yeah, you're coming through loud and clear. Good, good. So, yeah, the bees put the sugar syrup in the comb, reduce it, and that's, that's done now um, in particularly well when the temperature in the daytime is 75, even 80 degrees. 80 degrees, that's perfect. Um, any kind of medications should have been done already by now, any kind of miticides or whatnot. Um, certainly reduce the uh, entrances to a small chink hole so that the mice don't go in during the winter because they can wreak havoc and set up nests and um, do quite a bit of damage. In fact, when we came in, we were pleased to see a, a large black snake sunning himself on a, <laughs> on a rock. Uh, and, of course, there was a chipmunk very nervous nearby. So <laughs> we were happy to see that he was, he was around because unfortunately for the chipmunk, but a host of rodents are kept uh, in check by things like snakes. And um, it's a really good thing. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it just goes to show just how complex um, nature is and all of its, you know, stratified um, areas of, of, you know, once you start uh, organic gardening or keeping um, chickens or honeybees, you understand um, pests and pest management in a different way. And, um, you know, there's different insects that will eat the larvae of harmful bugs that destroy our crops, et cetera. Which reminds me, I was, this past summer, my helper and I, um, I live in the city and we process all the honey in the city. Everything gets brought back to New Haven, which is where we extract and spin the honey out and filter it. And all summer long, we were watching this 
wonderful white-faced hornet's nest um, develop at the foot of my driveway, way up in a tree at the foot of my driveway, right in the middle of the road, but high enough where it would never damage or threaten anyone. And you'd see occasionally the, the hornets in the garden, and they would be eating aphids and other bugs, and, and they were doing their job as part of this, this complex web of, of um, interdependency and, and, and benefits that organic gardening allows. And, you know, for those who don't know, the white-faced hornets are, uh, you know, no one likes to be stung by them, and they are somewhat ominous and threatening. But at the same time, the nests are never re-inhabited the next year. So if you see those gray paper nests, they won't be there next year. The bees, the queen goes out and overwinters by herself and the leaves are in the, in the, uh, in the moss somewhere. And um, they don't come back to that same nest. So in the course of the winter, the birds peck it apart and it falls down in the wind and it'll not be there. And they won't come back to that, set, that, uh, that specific location ever again. But, you know, it, it astounds me because I always get these calls and, you know, I try to explain to people, look at, I'm a beekeeper, not a hornet keeper, and I'm not an exterminator. Um, but if you just leave the nest alone, they won't be back, and they're quite beneficial. And once in a while, somebody will follow directions and listen to me about them. <laughs> but I guess my helper and I kind of oohed and odd over this beautiful nest forming, and it actually got to the size of maybe a, a soccer ball, maybe even a little larger. And we were just, ah, it's beautiful. And uh, I guess maybe we, somebody saw us looking at it one day or something. I, I can't recall. But um, sure enough, this, the town or somebody, they made sure that, we, that I wasn't there when they did it, but they took it down and killed it. Oh. And it was a very sad moment because I said, ah, once again, human beings cannot coexist with nature very much. And it, it really disappointed me. But um, I'm going to probably in the winter find a paper nest maybe – intact somewhere and the bees will have died naturally and i'm going to cut it down and and put it on my front porch just as a reminder <laughs> that maybe we could coexist together you know <laughs> but um in any event we're in the bee yard now and it's sunny and the solar panel is being charged and we've just finished um feeding bees and john has just checked a hive i said that hive doesn't look too good it it, it doesn't feel heavy enough and i don't think there's enough bees in it but he opened it up and he smoked the bees and he took out the frames and he said, yep, there's fresh eggs and there's a queen and they're just uh, a little behind schedule. So hmm. I said, okay, reduce the entrance to a chink hole and feed it and we'll see what we can do, see if we can nurse it, nurse it along, um, get, it, get it through winter. Which, um, you know, about actually you say, well, you know, maybe it was just meant to pass away or, or perish. But there, there was uh, maybe two months ago we had a hive in the same bee yard that was so, so strong. It had so many bees. I said, I was worried about it. And sure enough, we, because maybe it would not have enough food to eat with so many bees. I mean, there were just gobs of bees hanging on the outside, the inside. I said, this queen is going absolutely nuts. She's just laid so many eggs. And sure enough, we pull into the bee yard and it was, it was fortuitous. It was just in the nick of time that, um, they were starving to death, and there, were, uh, there was a pile of dead bees at the entrance, and the smell was something horrible. And I said, well, let's open it up, and we did. And I said, there's still some bees alive. And I actually shook some of the syrup right on the bees, and you could see them perk up almost amazingly right then and there. And I said, let's feed it. And we fed it, and we came back, and we fed it again, and we fed it again. So we, pro we probably have maybe 
three or four gallons of syrup invested in this one hive. And we just checked it and we said, it doesn't need any more syrup. And the population is just bounced back. And uh, so anyhow, things like that make you feel really good about what you can do as a beekeeper um, in terms of intervention and, and uh, animal husbandry and taking care of your livestock. Vincent, uh, in the time we have left, why don't you give us just a status report on where where the bees are at at this at this point in the season, and what what you can expect them to do in terms of uh, I guess honey production is done, but uh, t- tell us because you know we we need right. an update on that. Well, there's still some things blooming. I would say a beekeeper should have harvested the honey by now, and that's it. You're done. But as far as hive maintenance and the bees still gathering uh, nectar and honey for themselves, they are taking on weight still. Um, Even though we're feeding some, there are others we're not feeding, and they're actually still gaining weight, which is excellent. And they're gaining weight because we see them foraging heavily right now on those white and purple asters that you see along the road. Oh, yes. Some golden golden rod is left um, in patches, but it's mostly the asters, the goldenrod, and there is some Japanese knotweed in spots that is still blooming, but that's mostly over now also. And that's really all there is until mid-February when witch hazel starts to bloom and some of the flowers in the swamps, the uh, skunk cabbage and other things. But right now um, uh, it's kind of a tricky time because if there's a lot of bees, they can go through the food quickly. Uh, it's still warm, so the bees are very active. Um, sometimes you'll see them on piles of um, fruit and apples in an orchard, uh, along with the yellow jackets and hornets, of course. But they'll be getting the nectar um, or the juice from those, those rotting fruits, and it does provide some uh, nutrient and uh, certainly sugar um, content, natural sugars, for them to bring back. Uh, as soon as the cold weather or frost hits, you'll see all the drones being kicked out of the hive. The worker bees don't need drones in the hive anymore. And so they're put out to, to perish or die. And um, they're, not, they're not overwintered with the rest of the cluster. Mm-hmm. So if you're a drone, you know, you're in, your days are numbered. <laughs> <laughs> and that's that. That's the way nature sees it. And uh, it's not time to reproduce. It's time to huddle up and stay warm. And, and uh, don't despair, but pay attention to the darkness and the... Uh, Try to get through it, and then uh, and then come out of the spring. It, and the bees are very light dependent, very much like birds, like chickens. You'll see chickens with the shorting, shortening of the days. You'll see their egg laying capacities um, get less. And the same thing with the queens in the hives right now. There's still some egg laying going on, but as the light and the temperature continue to uh, lessen, uh, but in particular the light, um, we know this because. I have a glass hive in my shop where we extract the honey, and the bees come and go through a tube in the wall. They're not locked in at all, but it's a glass hive, and we use it like a barometer, and it allows you to study and notice different trends in the field. And, and it's much easier to go out, you know, 50 feet into my shop and say, ah, what are the bees doing today? Because they're probably doing, and they are doing the same thing out in the field. So you can actually um, mark almost to the minute or the day, I should say a minute, but the day of the winter solstice, the shortest day of the year, the egg laying will stop completely. It's like a clock. It's so unbelievable. And then as the days get longer, 
the queen at the center of the cluster. And this, this is, we can see this in the glass hive. So we watch it. She starts laying a few eggs to replace the ones on the outside of the cluster that are more exposed to the cold. And so, and then it just, like a, the sorcerer's apprentice, it gets more and more as the, the days get longer and they get warmer. Uh, not necessarily warmer, but certainly um, she will increase her egg laying, uh, irregardless of the temperature, according to the light. Hmm. Wow. Richard, uh, Vincent, I've got uh, a, a whole bunch of white asters, as you pointed out, that uh, yesterday I was outside looking, and uh, all of a sudden, they, they were not of a sudden, but there were a whole bunch of wild honeybees. And where in the world do those honeybees go? Because there's no, there's absolutely no uh, uh, honey place for them that, uh, that unless they go out there and find another hole or someplace. Where do they go at this time of the year, the wild ones? Well, were they honeybees, um, guys? Yes, they were definitely honeybees. Well, probably, you have to understand that a, that a bee travels an incredible distance from their hive. So uh-huh. a worker bee will travel a three-mile radius. Oh, my which, goodness. Well, if you go that. around, that's more than nine square miles. So somewhere in your vicinity, there's probably a beekeeper uh, keeping bees, which is probably where they came from, or a beekeeper whose hives swarm during the summer, and those bees are trying to reestablish a wild nest in the woods, um, uh, so in a hollow tree or something like that. That's where but, they go, um, into a hollow tree? They, do they go not, into the ground at all? No, there are. there is a couple of different bees that do, however, but they're not honeybees. Okay. There's the mason bee and the blue orchard bee that yeah. do that, and they do nest in composted areas. The bumblebee will do that also, but none of them produce honey. So it's a different cycle, a different life cycle. But if they were actual honeybees, it's probably that you have a beekeeper in your area, and yeah, um, that's a, a, that's a good thing. You're receiving goodness, free pollination. Yeah, that is really something. Anyway, they, I must have been at least uh, three or 400 of them uh, oh, nice. within this uh, white well, a pretty good-sized patch of white asters that yeah. uh, I, wow. I don't. The weeds and I grow along together, so I don't. They are. Out, they're uh, they're a good source of nectar for the bees. I find that the bees enjoy the uh, the purple asters a little bit more, but the white asters. I, we've seen them all morning today on the white asters and the purple, so that's a good thing. And then you know, of course, if people have certain plantings in their yards of this or that that the bees can gather from, you'll see the honeybees on that. I always marvel in the spring at Easter time or people have the, the hyacinths out, you know, um, you know, they buy them at the nurseries and people jump the gun because they're so sick of winter. So anything green or has a bulb, they'll plant it. And, but it, the hyacinths have a great aroma, and they, um, if you like that, but it's, um, they, they produce pollen too. So often people will put them out in pots and you'll see honeybees all over them, you know, in March. So it's great. Yeah. Well, Vincent, um, we are go- about to uh, move on to our next segment here, and we want to thank you uh, from the bottom of our hearts for another wonderful <laughs> journey in North Madison today. And uh, we, of course, will um, follow the journey, your journey and the journey of the hives throughout the winter with you on the first Thursday of each month. Well, thank you, Richard, and hopefully we won't get too philosophical during the dark, dark times, but we might get a little. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's all uh, fair in love and war, but 
We uh, <laughs> certainly enjoy Vincent Kay's report each month. So thanks, Vincent Kay, for being with us here on the Organic Farm Stand. Okay, again. thank you, Richard. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. Yeah. Right. Take, take care now. Take care. Okay, and uh, so let me just see. I'm just going to try to uh, get ourselves. Uh, there we go. Okay, and now... Um, I do believe we have uh, Katie Poole with us on the phone. Katie, are you there? I am here. Good afternoon, guys. Uh, great to have you. Uh, Katie is the general manager of Massaro Farm in Woodbridge, Connecticut. Katie, why don't we just begin by having you give us uh, a description of the farm for those people who haven't been there and who don't have may, may not have even heard of it. Uh, sure. There's a few um, of so our, a few of us I, out there. Yeah. Um, we have a lovely spot. We're actually sitting right on the town line between Woodbridge and Ansonia, so we do serve both uh, the New Haven community and the lower Naugatuck Valley. Um, we're a mixed vegetable farm, so we grow about 40 different crops here now, um, or more, each year, um, primarily for CSA subscribers. Um, so we get most of our customers coming here to the farm to get their shares, and Guy, I didn't hear you talk about this, but I, um, we've actually had quite a growth in interest of uh, the CSA since the pandemic. So even though we, in, in uh, non-COVID years, we've been also going to the farmer's markets and restaurant sales, I think most of our produce has actually been channeling more towards CSA and directly to those customers. But um, we're also, we have quite a bit of space here, even though we're, our growing operation is right around 10 acres. Um, we, we have about 57 acres in total, and we do use that as a community space. So, for instance, tomorrow evening we're doing our last free movie screening of the year. Um, so we've been able to host a number of events, um, including some outdoor education for youth, which has been quite, quite um, engaged this year, quite a lot of interest in that for kids between, like, 5 and, and 12. Um, but, yeah, that's basically what goes on here. So we are, we are certified organic, and this is a property that used to be a, a family dairy farm, and we've been uh, doing this vegetable operation for the last 12 years. That's great. Uh, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to think. I, I, I wanted to ask you uh, what this summer was like as compared to what we might call a normal summer. In other words, how did COVID affect your operation, if if at all, this summer? Well, I mean, I feel like um, that's almost like a a non-issue at this point because we've been through our second season, um, and so while last year it felt like there was a lot of uncertainty, mm -hmm. um, as I mentioned, we did have an increase in interest in our CSA subscriptions. That might be because um, when things first shut down early last year, we converted to offering our products which would have otherwise gone to restaurants, to, to an, a small online store that we set up in partnership with some other nearby farms. And so that allowed, I think, uh, us to even garner additional interest from people who might not have been subscribing to us before. Um, we did, I, I will say, so, so this year, having gone through all of those adaptations of, you know, making online sales more accessible, uh, making drive-through pickup accessible, hmm. um, all of those things sort of felt a little bit more, a little bit easier to handle this year. We did start out with in-person, um, with people coming into our barn and, and doing their self-serve pickup, but um, when we saw numbers tick up mid-season, we did convert back to our drive-through pickup. 
that's probably the one big difference when it comes to COVID. If you want to talk about climate change and a normal versus a not normal year, that's a whole other issue. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's relevant, too. So if you have anything to talk, mention on that, go, go right ahead. Yeah, I mean, I, Guy, I don't know if you what you have to chime into this, but I feel like what farmers have to adapt to new is that there really isn't a normal. Um, you know, with these extreme storms, we might not be getting rain as consistently, but when it does come, it comes in much bigger numbers. For instance, we had, uh, I think in July and August, we had 13 inches of rain here, oh which God. is a lot. It's a lot for a summer period, but there were other farms that were just north of us or an hour north of us, a farm I was visiting two weeks ago, they had 22 inches of rain in the same period. So I can see why, you know, depending on what folks were actually farming, um, whether it was produce or animals, like where they got hit quite hard um, with this, these extreme sort of measures um, and weather events. Last year it seemed to be more wind events here, and this year it was definitely more water. And, I mean, there really is no one solution to that. We've, we've done quite a bit of erosion control measures. Uh, we do have one quite large diversion swale here on the farm, but we received some NRC our growing operation going quite long into the fall. Um, I mean, we used to do our, our typical summer CSA, which is 20 weeks, usually ends at the end of October, and we used to do maybe a few-week extension um, getting us to Thanksgiving. Uh, this year we're actually going to do a six-week extension because we've been planting more in response to the, you know, the interest and that means we can create that sort of longer fall extension. We have protection from the elements, and we've got the interest, which is lovely. So, um, but, yeah, I mean, having things like lots of tomatoes and other crops still going in a high tunnel is, is what's happening here right now. But we're also doing the same thing that, Guy, you were talking about, which is testing the soil. This is a great time to not only test but actually you know, find and add your amendments because a lot of times you're trying to find those in the spring and they might not be available, right, because so many other people are trying to buy them. So this mm. is actually a great time to do cover cropping and soil amendments for whatever you're going to plant next year. And we do quite a bit of cover cropping here as well. You're absolutely right, Katie. And this, I also like to emphasize that within the last two years, it's been very important to order your seeds early and sometimes get those orders in before the first of the year because uh, there's been a lot of shortages of various uh, really good crops. Yes. I mean, last year, Johnny's uh, and maybe even one other um, put a hold on uh, seed sales for about a month just so they could catch up. Right. Exactly. <laughs> could, could, could you, uh, e e either or both of you, mention uh, a couple of seed companies? We had some inquiries at the last show I did here uh, with you guys that— um, People calling and saying, where can I order my seeds? I mentioned Fedco, but I'm sure uh, there may be others or better than that. Uh, well, we're talking organic, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I'm sure uh, Katie's got some pretty good ones. I usually go through, uh, make sure I go through Harris, and Harris puts out a separate organic catalog, which is very interesting. Uh, Johnny's, which is always good. High mowing, which I like. A little bit expensive, but uh, uh, have some really great products. Turtle Tree, which I really enjoy using because they're not too far away from us. And uh, they're also very oriented about uh, having an, a nice group of work workers who are somewhat disabled in some cases. Yeah. 
So yeah, anyway, I, I, so I have to echo that. We 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 kind of stick with what works for us, and um, high mowing and Johnny's have been our primary seed suppliers um, for as long as I can remember. Uh, we do get some from our education for our educational garden spaces from Hudson Hudson Valley Seed Company, um, which are quite nice, and and they also support. Uh, local farmers and, and local co-ops with the, pro, the proceeds of their seed sales, um, but those are primarily our sources as well. That's very good, yeah. Well, we, thanks we for support, that. We support all that. I actually like to get a, a lot of catalogs uh, uh, to include uh, those out there west, like uh, Territorial, and they're, uh, they're an excellent catalog. Also, they put out several versions during the course of the year, and uh, even though they're from Oregon, uh, some most of their seeds uh, do pretty well here. Now I've had a lot of trouble trying to grow some, not a lot of trouble, but some trouble trying to grow the uh, uh, garlic from uh, other places. It takes usually about three years to get uh, garlic from either Oregon or Michigan to grow well. And I, I just keep it separate. And so in about three years, that, or, that garlic will adjust to our climate and soils, whereas it does not have the same sort of soils, particularly if you get California soils, which are much different than our soils. Yeah. Hmm, hmm, hmm. Well, that's all very interesting. Now, at this point, I, um, I'm going to uh, read us the Riot Act, which is that we have automation here at PKN now. So... When uh, when I say the show's over, the show is over. And the way you will know that is that the uh, the um, theme music will come back. I'll, I'll put the uh, correct music on. And uh, so when the music starts, we've got to stop talking and say goodbye right then. And then I'll fade the music out in time so that we don't get uh, a guillotine black, uh, blade come down right on our necks. Right. Uh, Richard, are you in a new location in Fairfield? Good question. No, we are still at the university, and things are all complicated because we're doing fundraising now, and we've got boxes of CDs in the hallways, and we're, we're going to make the move. I think it's uh, we're sch scheduled for uh, second or third week of November. I don't have the exact date in front of me. But uh, yes, keep your keep your eye on the website and uh, okay. for, for news about the move because that's coming up and there will be festivities uh, uh, abound uh, abounding around that and you'll want to be a part of that. Good, Katie. Thank you so much. That was a magnificent report that you <laughs> gave, and I've. We're most appreciative. Now, you hosted us uh, several times over the past years, but not really, well, not within the last two years, not with the COVID anyway. Right. Yeah, Katie, uh, uh, in closing, why don't you give us any kind of events or community uh, projects that you're, you're planning between now and uh, the time when you, uh, I guess, basically shut it down for the winter? Sure. I mean, we will we will always have a small amount growing in all of those wonderful high tunnels that we have. Um, so we're and have staff growing. Uh, sorry, harvesting about once a week in the winter months. But um, for the rest of the fall, I would say that um, we do expect and we do have spots available in that six week CSA. If anyone's interested, it's actually right on the landing page of our website, which is masarofarm.org. Um, six week fall CSA, and then we've got a couple of those fun events. We're doing a free movie screening. 
and some other kids' activities tomorrow evening. We'll have a food truck here. That program starts at 4.30 and goes till about 9. And then on October 16th, we have our last. We've been doing a lot of outdoor concerts this year to, you know, provide safe space and give musicians a venue, um, which we didn't have if we remember just a short time ago in the spring. And then our, our fall and winter education for youth will continue. There, some of those programs are midstream right now. And then I do expect them to finish in November and pick up again after the holidays. So I would encourage people to just visit our website, um, check out our calendar. Um, even if you're just coming to visit the farm, like there are a lot of blue trails in this area, and we have a nice hiking trail on the farm. So even if you're just looking for a spot over the wintertime to take a walk or do some snowshoeing, um, there's a lot of space on the farm and, and nearby to do that. Oh, that's great. That's great to hear. Uh, I'm I'm. Uh, uh, inveterate hiker myself, although I've been a little bit slow afoot recently, but um, I did not know about that trail system up there. The blue trails are wonderful, and uh, we do have um, them lacing all through different unexpected places in Connecticut. So, well, Katie's yeah, and the been... maps are available digitally now, so if you haven't discovered them, please do. If you're new to the state, um, it's a tremendous trail system. I would strongly encourage uh, people to make use of that. They're beautifully maintained by the Connecticut Forest and Park Association. Fantastic. Katie Massaro, from, uh, I'm Katie Poole from Massaro Farm. Thank we, you, guys. We thank you so much for joining us. We'll have you back very soon. And enjoy this great fall weather. Yes. Absolutely. Guy right. Beardsley, uh, always a pleasure. We, I, uh, I love uh, our conversations and your contribution to the show. My name is Richard Hill, and we are going to shut it down. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. Roger that. Gets crazier by the day. Yes, it do. And the companies are throwing us. You know what they're doing? They're throwing us a chemical bouquet. Oh, yeah. Come on, baby. You've got nothing to I'm FDA approved. Organic love. Oh, 100% natural. Well, well, well. Organic love. Baby, it's 100% natural. This is the Gaia-Gram, environmental headlines from around a planet in crisis. A startling new UN report has found that almost 90% of the $540 billion in global subsidies given to farmers every year are harmful. This agricultural support damages people's health, fuels the climate crisis, destroys nature, and drives inequality by excluding smallholder farmers, many of whom are women. The report said the biggest sources of greenhouse gas emissions, such as beef and milk, received the biggest subsidies. These are often produced by large industrialized groups that are best placed to gain access to these subsidies. A study published in the journal Nature Climate Change warned that extreme sea levels will become more common by the end of the century around the world, and the rise will be 1 to 2 meters by 2100, flooding some of the world's major cities and countries. The Maldives, the world's lowest-lying country, is at risk of disappearing, so it's planning a floating city as a means of survival. The top 11 cities most likely to disappear by 2100 are 
Miami, Florida, Venice, Italy, Jakarta, Indonesia, Mumbai, India, Bangkok, Thailand, Rotterdam, the Netherlands, Alexandria, Egypt, Virginia Beach, Virginia, New Ireland, Louisiana, Lagos, Nigeria, and Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. Hundreds of birds fatally collided into skyscrapers in New York City recently, an overwhelming event caused by inclement weather, but a persistent issue in the city. A New York City Audubon volunteer highlighted the mass casualty event in a series of tweets September 14th and 15th, documenting 291 dead birds. The group's associate director of conservation and science, Caitlin Parkins, told the Associated Press the death toll reflects an ongoing issue the organization routinely documents. The House Oversight and Reform Committee announced Thursday it is launching